Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung here at Broadcast Central. Welcome to 90 Minutes of Information that will assist you in understanding how the prophetic scenario that is found in God's Word is so quickly coming together. I have six broadcast partners stationed all over the world. They will come with their reports to help us understand what I'm talking about. For example, David James is going to report on Pope Francis' visit to the Middle East, in particular to Iraq, and the Iraqi Christians are very much upset about that. You need to hear what David will tell us. Then Winky Madad, at the beginning of the next half hour of Prophecy Today, will talk about Saudi Arabia. They say there is no Islamic link to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Seems to indicate the Jews could go ahead, put their temple up on the Temple Mount. Those stories, plus many others, as we bring our broadcast partners to the table, we do that now with Ken Timmerman, the man who covers geopolitical activities across the world. Ken, here seems to be the lead story to me for this last week. China could invade Taiwan in the next six years and assume global leadership. That's according to a U.S. admiral warning that this could be the case. What do you know about this story? Uh, well, Jimmy, it sounds to me that Admiral Philip Davidson, who's the commander of the Indo-Pacific Command of the United States Navy, must be at the end of his tour. <laughs> he, he's been there at least two years, two, I think close to three years now. He must be near the end of his tour to become so candid in his testimony before Congress. The things that he said earlier this week are absolutely extraordinary, I think. Number one, he said that the threat to Taiwan by communist China is extreme. He said Taiwan is clearly one of their ambitions. He said that the threat is manifest during this decade, quote, in fact, in the next six years. So he is expecting an invasion of Taiwan within the next six years by communist China. That's Pretty interesting, and it kind of ups the ante for what's going on there. He also pointed out that China's Navy is now bigger than the U.S. Navy. They have over 350 surface ships. Uh, we may have better quality ships. We certainly have more aircraft carriers. They only have two today, but they're building another two, and the number four in that list will be their first nuclear-powered aircraft carrier. Now, people generally think of China as a regional power. You do not need a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier that allows you to stay at sea for, you know, basically forever without refueling. You don't need that unless you want to go beyond the South China Sea, beyond even in the Indian Ocean. You need that to steam around the world the way we do with our aircraft carrier group. So this naval expansion of communist China is very worrying. And one more thing. Let me tell you about Admiral Phil Davidson, is that he also was asked by Tom Cotton about China's nuclear weapons arsenal. And he told Cotton that if they quadruple their stockpile, they could outmatch the United States by the end of this decade. In other words, have more nuclear weapons at the U.S. Now, here's, the, here's what really got my attention there. By public assessment, 
right, public figures, the U.S. has around 6,000 warheads. The Chinese have around 300. But what he says, if the Chinese quadruple their, their warheads, they would surpass the United States, meaning with 1,200 warheads? No. What he was telling you is something that I've been tracking for the past 20 years, and that is reports, intelligence reports, that the Chinese have secretly been building nuclear warheads that they have not deployed, that they've kept in a, a series of tunnels that the United States military regularly reports uh, on to Congress. So we know about those tunnels, but it's been secretly stockpiling warheads there. And what Admiral Davidson, to me, was saying was that the Chinese probably have today around 1,200 warheads, not 3,000. And so if they quadruple that number, they will surpass the U.S. arsenal. That is really big news. You know, what really concerns me as well, Ken, is the fact that it seems the United States is losing their military edge in Asia as China looks like they're planning for a war. Is that a pretty definite scenario that I'm seeing, or is it incorrect? Well, remember, the Chinese would like to win conflicts without fighting them. They would rather not have to fight a war. And the way that you do that is by... Basically, it's peace through strength, <laughs> right? It's, been, it's the Reagan approach. It's also the Sun Tzu approach to military conflict. Deter your enemies with overwhelming force. So I think what the Chinese are trying to do here, by rapidly expanding their military capabilities in the South China Sea and in the area, is essentially to deter the United States from blocking their move to take over Taiwan, which they've told us again and again. I mean, there's no doubt that that's what they want to do. Their move to completely take over Hong Kong, which they've done at 90% already. So they basically want to deter us from intervening by showing us that the price of intervention would be way, way beyond what we are politically willing to pay. Let me make a connection now between China and the Middle East. We understand that uh, Saudi Arabia does not today, because of President Joe Biden, have a good connection relationship with the United States. I'm wondering, would that mean Saudi Arabia may start buying weapons from Russia and or China? Well, it's entirely possible, Jimmy, and it would not be the first time. Remember, during the Reagan administration, the Saudis secretly bought long-range ballistic missiles from China in 1985. This was something that really stunned the United States. We didn't find out about it for several years after the fact. Now, you mentioned President Biden. Joe Biden has announced publicly that he is going to scale back relations with Saudi Arabia, that he is going to cut off arms sales to Saudi Arabia. He does not like their war in Yemen. He has taken the Houthis, the Iranian-backed terror group in Yemen, off of the U.S. terrorism list. So Biden has made his intentions very, very clear. He also personally dislikes Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince. And I've been looking into this very closely recently. He's made statements about the crown prince, which are really quite extravagant. They fear the Saudi crown prince for many reasons, number one being his determination along with the Israelis, to prevent the Islamic regime in Iran from going nuclear. The Biden regime wants to make a deal with Iran. They don't want to prevent them from going nuclear. They want to make a deal with Iran, a new nuclear agreement, but also to make a deal that will open up Iran to U.S. businesses. 
And so I think the U.S. and Saudi Arabia are on a collision course. So, yes, uh, they could buy weapons from China or Russia. And again, it would not be the first time, at least from China. Let me talk about Tayyip Erdogan, who is the lifetime president for Turkey. Looks like he and Vladimir Putin, president of Russia, are remotely starting some nuclear reactor construction there in Turkey. Is that a step towards making Turkey a nuclear-powered nation at this point in time, Ken? Uh, It is, and that is uh, Erdogan's goal, is to increase the ability of Turkey to produce energy from nuclear power reactors. It's not the same as nuclear weapons. It's nuclear power reactors. Yes, the nuclear fuel cycle, which, as far as I have seen so far, Turkey has not begun, would give them access to nuclear weapons. But they don't have that yet. It doesn't look like they have that yet. So this is the fourth reactor, I believe it is, that uh, Turkey has been building with the aid of Russian companies. And we say they remotely started the reactor. I mean, that's simply because they could not get together because of COVID travel restrictions to kind of cut the ribbon, if you wish, (laughs) beginning to build this reactor. But this is the fourth nuclear reactor that the Russians are building in Turkey. That then may well set the stage for them becoming a nuclear-powered nation. And that goes along with this story. Turkey signaling this week they have sweeping regional ambitions, and they even laid out a map of what they would like to control as Tayyip Erdogan moves towards being that pan-Islamic leader of the world. Not a good sign, is it? Well, it's a long-standing ambition. This is, the, this is the big picture, if you wish. We're looking at the telescope up at the stars, and this is looking at Turkey's grand ambition, at Erdogan's personal grand ambition of reviving the Ottoman Empire, reviving a Turkic-centric world in Central Asia, but also in the Middle East. And we've talked about this on this program, Jimmy, their push into Libya, which has been very strong, and it's been going on since... 2012, the Libyan Civil War. Turkey was was deeply involved in the Libyan Civil War. Well, today, remember, they have declared that uh, maritime corridor between Turkey and Libya, and they're trying to lay stake to parts of Libya. But this bigger ambition goes from Libya through the Saudi, the Arabian Peninsula, all the way up into Central Asia, into Azerbaijan, and across the top of the Caspian Sea over to Turkmenistan. Why is Turkmenistan called Turkmenistan? Well, guess what? Because they, like the Azeris, are a Turkic people. Their language is close to Turkish, and they have a historic affinity to Turkey. So this is, again, the revival of that Ottoman ambition of Erdogan's is very real. It is a long-term goal, and every year they are making progress towards that goal. And it is very significant prophetically, according to the word, the prophetic word of God. I'll deal with that when we take a look at the book at the end of the broadcast. Ken Timmerman, the man who covers geopolitical activities, has a brilliant mind, in my opinion. We want his analysis on these current events, and that's why we bring him to the broadcast table each and every week. Ken, thank you so much. We'll have another conversation next week. Thanks so much, Jimmy. It's always my pleasure. God bless. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, David Dolan has his Middle East news update. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. (laughs) 
every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible Prophecy Student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. I want to remind you that I do have a website. It's prophecytoday.com. This is a full-service website. It will assist you in your study of Bible prophecy. For example, I have a prophecy bookstore with a number of materials that will help you as you study through the prophetic passages of God's Word. I have a number of books, DVD documentaries, and five-hour audio series on the subject of Bible prophecy. I have a prophecy Q&A section, and then I list the top 10 news stories on a daily basis. These are news stories that seemingly are setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. And I will give you a prophetic perspective on those news stories. That website that you should bookmark is prophecytoday.com. Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung here at the Broadcast Central Broadcast Table where I'm going to bring my next broadcast partner, David Dolan, to this microphone to give us information about the Middle East with his Middle East News Update, a central report for those of us who are students of Bible prophecy. We have other broadcast partners standing by in the second half hour. Winky Madad will talk about Saudi Arabia, and they say there's no Islamic link to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Very interesting. And then David James will talk about the Pope's visit to Iraq and the Christians in Iraq saying they are upset with the Pope and what he did with the Islamic leaders. David James brings that to the broadcast table, so keep the dial right where it is. Let's get now to the Middle East news update from David Dolan. David, we've talked about the Israelis. Potentially, they could launch a preemptive strike against Iran's nuclear program. Now, the Iranian defense minister is messaging back to Israel that if you launch a preemptive strike, Iran will take out Tel Aviv and Haifa. Oh, boy, that's a, a pretty dangerous pledge unless you think you can really do it. Well, Jimmy, it's a pledge that the Iranians have made repeatedly now over the whole last several decades, really. But right now, the possibility of a full-on conflict between Israel and Iran is very, very high. Military analysts are watching that. We have this shadow war already going on. And Jimmy, on Friday, an Iranian ship said it was attacked in the eastern Mediterranean off of the 
port city of Haifa, not far away from it, and they implied that Israel was behind it. And a report came out in the Wall Street Journal earlier in the week that Israel has carried out about 12 strikes against Iranian ships, mostly taking illegally taking oil to Syria, trying to break the sanctions that the U.S. has put upon Iran by clandestinely selling Iranian oil to Syria. So these incidents are going on all the time. But for a major clash to occur, Israel is certainly saying, as I mentioned last week, again, the defense minister repeated it out loud, that plans are in place for an Israeli strike on the Iranian nuclear program if Israel deems that essential. The program has been sped up. The U.N. has uh, filed more complaints uh, during this uh, past week over Iranian violations and uh, hiding what they're doing and not allowing inspectors in and different things like that. The Europeans also now are very upset over that. So the stage is set for a major clash. Now, Haifa and Tel Aviv, those would probably be hit from Lebanon, and that's what concerns the Israelis most, is that the Iranians, as we've been talking about, have been upgrading Hezbollah missiles to precision-guided missiles, maybe a thousand of them so far, uh, of these missiles that could hit precisely targets. And uh, that is a very dangerous development. But, of course, Iran also has, and they've displayed this, ballistic missiles and uh, cruise missiles that could be launched from Syria or Lebanon or Iran itself or Iraq. They've got positions, or uh, Yemen even. Uh, The Houthi rebels, in fact, attacked an oil port a Saudi oil port during uh, last week, early last week, and did a lot of damage with these drones. So there's various methods that Iran could use to attack Tel Aviv and Haifa, and of course, ultimately, uh, a nuclear bomb could wipe out both uh, cities in a second, and uh, that's what Israel's trying to prevent. And meanwhile, Israeli jet fighters escorting an American B-52 bomber in a show of force to Iran as they flew over the Persian Gulf. Talk to us about that. Well, that's the second time the Biden administration has ordered uh, B-52s over the Middle East. Uh, President Trump had done that several times as well in the last half of uh, last year. And it is an important development. First, British fighter jets accompanied the uh, U.S. B-52s over the Mediterranean. Then, as you said, Israeli jets then flew up and accompanied them over Israeli territory. And then as they went down south over Saudi Arabia, Saudi jets were also involved in this uh, show of force. And then as they headed over the Gulf, The United Arab Emirates set up some of its aircraft to accompany these U.S. jets. So it was uh, designed to warn Iran that the U.S. is still around. It just takes a few hours to get those jets from the United States to the Middle East. And here are our allies that all have uh, significant air forces that can also join us in any operation. Of course, the target would be Iran, uh, a warning to the Ayatollahs. And of course, we had more Iranian-linked attacks on U.S. positions in Iraq over the past two weeks and other action in the Gulf. I could uh, spend 15 minutes just talking about 
this shadow war that's going on, but it's very significant. And, of course, that was an indication that the Biden administration, even though it wants to resume the nuclear talks with Iran, is also watching the military developments and ready to join its allies in a response if necessary. That is very reassuring, uh, certainly to the Israelis. David, this last week, Prime Minister Netanyahu was to have flown into the United Arab Emirates because of the Abraham Accords and the relationship now Israel has with the UAE to be able to have some conversations about investments from the UAE in Israel. I understand that would have been billions of dollars. But that flight was cut off because he had to fly over the airspace of Jordan And Jordan denied that opportunity. Get into the details behind why that happened. Well, Jimmy, it was the fourth attempted visit by uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu to the UAE. The other three were postponed because of COVID. The Israeli airport was closed and this and that happened. And so this was the fourth time. And as you say, uh, on Thursday, he was to fly down there for several days. In fact, there were reports that the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman was going to join them during meetings, and that would have been very important. But as you say, in the end, it was the Jordanians that prevented it. Well, first off, the prime minister's wife was rushed into the hospital on Wednesday with appendicitis. So that delayed his departure by a bit, but he was still intending to go on Thursday. Well, the Jordanian crown prince, Hussein bin Abdullah, he was on his way to the Temple Mount. And a leader of the Jordanian monarchy has not visited there in many, many years. So this was going to be a historic visit. And negotiations had been going on between Israel and Jordan over this. Well, he showed up at the border crossing over the Jordan River, Allenby Bridge, with a huge contingent of armed men that were to accompany him. Well, the agreement was that he could have a few armed uh, people with him, but not a whole mini-army. So the Israelis were offended by that, said, no, we're not going to let all these people in. We'll let in the original number only. So the crown prince became insulted and said, no, I want all these people. And the Israelis saw this as a show of force that Jordan wanted to reassert its control over the Temple Mount. And uh, so he was turned aback, basically. He could have come in, but he said, no, if I can't bring everybody in, I'm going home. So he turned around, and that visit was canceled. And then the next day, when uh, the prime minister's plane needed to fly over Jordanian airspace, the quickest way, anyway, to get to uh, the UAE, uh, they denied that to the Jordanian government, but under the instructions of King Abdullah. So this is the worst crisis between Jordan and Israel in many years, Jimmy, and it just shows how tenuous those relations are, how important still the Temple Mount is. And, of course, the Jordanians were earlier insulted at uh, President Trump's suggestion that possibly the Saudis should now be given a a role in running the Temple Mount for the Muslim side. And um, the Jordanians didn't like that. Of course, we have to look back 100 years ago when the uh, Saudi uh, royal family took over uh, Mecca and Medina. Who did they kick out? The Hashemites. King uh, Abdullah's uh, relatives, his ancestors, were the custodians of the Saudi holy sites as well as in Jerusalem, and they lost 
Of course, those uh, southern uh, places, the most important places in Islam, they lost that control, and they don't want to lose control over the Temple Mount. So this is really, yet again, another dispute over that holy piece of ground that is the most contested place in the world. It is the most contested place. The ancient prophet Zechariah, chapter 12, verse 2, said that indeed would be the case in the last days. David Dolan, the man who covers the Middle East for us, his Middle East news update. You need to hear it each and every week. That's why we bring him to the broadcast table here on Prophecy Today in order for you to get his insight into these events happening in that key region of the world. David, thank you so very much, my good friend. We'll have another conversation next week. Glad to do it, Jimmy. God bless. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back at the broadcast table, will be Winky Madad. Saudi Arabia says there is no link between Islam and the Temple Mount. You need to hear this report from Winky Madad. It's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung here at Broadcast Central. Welcome back to this 90 minutes of information coming from broadcast partners around the world covering different current events that are helping us see how the prophetic scenario found in God's Word is coming better into focus moment by moment. We're going to go to Winky Madad, some late breaking news happening just in the last couple of days. You need to have understanding of what's going on. All right, Winky, here's what I want to talk to you about. A couple of items, a pulpery, may we say. Uh, Saudi Arabia is uh, saying that they are actually rejecting the Palestinian Authority claim to the Temple Mount because it's an embarrassment, it's a humiliation, and uh, they do not want the Palestinians to have access to the Temple Mount, many other Arab nations joining with the Saudis in that. Can you give us more details about this story? As everybody should know, Jordan is ruled by the Hashemite family. Up until 1924, they were the ruling family in what we now know as Saudi Arabia and were the custodians of Mecca and Medina 
the first two holy sites for the Islamic religion. Ibn Saud kicked them out, and they ended up all over the Middle East, Iraq, and other places. And all they have to hold on today is the fact that Israel, in signing the peace treaty with Jordan in 1994, granted special relationship to the Temple Mount without really defining it. If you look at Article 9 of the Jordan-Israel Peace Treaty on your computer, you'll see it talks very nicely about freedom of religion, freedom of worship, but it doesn't really define it. The religious Islamic trust on the Temple Mount, which we've discussed many times in the past, Jimmy, which is known as the Waqf, W-A-Q-F, is actually a part of the religious ministry of the Jordanian government. Saudi Arabia would very much like to replace Jordan as the custodian. Jordan realizes it really doesn't have too much uh, leverage, and so in between the Palestinian Authority and Israel government and Saudi Arabia, Jordan is playing a very interesting game here of who rules what. It looks to me like, really, the argument is all about the Saudis wanting to make certain that the Islamic world, in their daily prayers, focus on Mecca, which, according to the Saudis and according to the Islamic world, is the number one holy site for the Muslim people in the world. Is that pretty much on target? The Saudis concerned about where and what the focus of the Muslim world is? Very much so, Jimmy. In addition to that, there's always been a centuries-old argument about exactly where that farthest mosque or the furthest mosque that is mentioned in the Quran happens to be. If you anybody looks up the Quran and tries to figure out where the Muhammad went to, it doesn't say. So there are many Islamic scholars who claim that it's not in Jerusalem at all, it is somewhere else, most probably Saudi Arabia. And I think the Saudi Arabians combine that, their political disaffection, with the fact that the Palestinians are always at the center of things and never getting beyond their own, uh, as we, we have a phrase in Hebrew, their own belly button, and make sure that the entire Arab world is harnessed to their struggle instead of being free to make their own decisions, such as, what you see happening over the past two or three years between Israel and Bahrain and the United Emirates and other places, Morocco now, Sudan and other places, where uh, compromise, coexistence, and even peace agreements are being made. Well, as I hear you telling us what is going on, I think that it's very interesting that the Saudis reject any Islamic claim to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and I think I read something that said that they were encouraging the Jews to go ahead and build a temple up there. Am I off base there, or is that pretty much on target? Well, I'm not quite sure, Jimmy, uh, whether that is an official Saudi Arabian policy, or it may be some individuals or uh, intellectuals are trying to move that on what we call social media platforming, or maybe the Saudis are sending them out as as a test for the war, you know, to try the water 
uh, and to see what's going on. But it definitely is a very interesting development, especially in the background of what happened this past week when the crown prince of uh, Jordan turned around at the border on the Jordan River and did not come over to pray as he intended to do on the Temple Mount. Mm. Boy, that's a very interesting development. Uh, did that upset uh, the leadership there in Jordan very much? I say that tongue-in-cheek, of course. Well, I very much did so, because the very next day, our Prime Minister, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, was supposed to fly out for a short visit to the United uh, Arab Emirates, and he requested permission to fly over Jordanian airspace, and they said no for about three hours, and by the time everything was arranged, he had lost the opportunity to fly. So we had a standoff there, and a lot of feathers, as they say, are ruffled on both sides of the Jordan River, and I don't know exactly who's going to make the most of this, Jordan, Israel, or Saudi Arabia, or other Arab countries. Very interesting developments. We'll stay on top of this story with Winky Madad. One other item I want to discuss with you. I understand a group of leading rabbis have petitioned the prime minister to be able to hold a Passover sacrifice on the Temple Mount, which is required by biblical teaching in the Word of God. Uh, is there any possibility that could happen at all this year, Winky? Uh, with all confidence and disappointment, uh, no. I think our Supreme Court has already rejected a petition to the court, and I don't think that Mr. Netanyahu is going to either override that or give it special permission. He has never really agreed to any ritual, whether it's prayer or, or, or biblical reading or the Passover sacrifice to be done inside the Temple Mount. I think we've discussed this in the, pa in the past, Jimmy, back in October uh, 2015, with uh, then Secretary of State Joan Kerry of the United States, Netanyahu had said, there is a status quo which I will observe, which is that everybody can visit the Temple Mount, but only the Muslims can pray at it. And that is an issue which does not sit well with the religious Jews who are eager to be able to put a temple up on the Temple Mount in order to be able to prepare for that. Uh, the capability of holding a Passover sacrifice would be a very viable move forward towards that temple. Though I imagine try to get someplace close to the Temple Mount and reenact that uh, Passover sacrifice, will they not, Winky? Most probably they do every year. And we'll see exactly how it is. Don't forget, this is also a semi-corona situation, so I don't know exactly how it will work out. But I'm sure that there will be several people that will reenact it or use it as an educational tool to keep the memory of the Passover sacrifice alive. One more quick question before I let you go. Will next week get together and talk about the upcoming Israeli elections to take place on March the 23rd. But is everything uh, moving pretty swiftly and quickly and smoothly towards those elections this year? Well, they're moving, and to tell you the truth, there is not that much excitement about it. In fact, the politicians are doing all they can 
to charge up the atmosphere in the street, as we say, get things moving. And it's still up in the air because we have two sort of right-wing politicians that broke away from supporting Mr. Netanyahu, and Mr. Netanyahu is trying to put them into the left-wing block, and it's getting very complicated as to whether or not he will be able to form a coalition once again uh, after the 23rd of March. And the question will be, will any one of them or both of them walk back their promise not to serve under Netanyahu and still yet do so because of the situation? If you'll join us next week here on Prophecy Today, we'll be all over that story with Winky Madad because the elections will be just a couple of days after the broadcast. Winky, great information, late-breaking information. Nobody else is covering it. I'm sure the mainstream media is not doing that. But uh, we always can rely upon you to give us all the details of what really is happening. Thank you so much, Winky. Appreciate it. We'll talk next week. Jerry, thank you for having me on the program, and goodbye to you and our listeners. Very, very important conversation with Winky Madad, a potpourri of items we touched. First of all, the Saudis rejecting the claim to the Temple Mount by the Palestinians. Then we talked about the possibility of a Passover sacrifice on the Temple Mount should the Prime Minister be able to approve that, and of course, a quick look at the elections upcoming in the state of Israel. Winky Madad, one of our great broadcast partners, a good friend. We always appreciate when we can have a conversation with Winky. Now, we're going to stay in Israel. We're going to be talking with Maurice Hirsch. Maurice is a part of the team Palestinian Media Watch team, which is headed up by Itamar Marcus. You know, he's one of our regular broadcast partners here at Prophecy Today. Uh, But Maurice recently wrote an article, a very comprehensive article, about what's going on with the ICC, the International Criminal Court. I thought it was important enough that we needed to discuss it, and I thought Maurice would be the man to do that. Maurice, let me just ask you, first of all, define for us, our listeners who may not be familiar, who is the ICC, the International Criminal Court? Okay, so the International Criminal Court was set up, the idea came uh, to fruition of setting up a, a constant court that would deal with international war crimes. Dealing with war crimes had always been a situation of the winner takes the spoils and the winner also puts the other side on trial. And often it was the case that, that war crimes were committed and no one really paid, uh, was always held accountable for them. So the idea was to set up a court that would be impartial, that would be independent, that would look at the, the most serious of offenses and be a court of last resort when all other possibilities for holding war criminals to account had been already used and wasted and, and not really brought any results, the court would step in. That's the idea of the International Criminal Court. Unfortunately, immediately while it was already being discussed, setting up its statute, its basic um, document, which really defines how the court works 
and the offences that, that would be relevant for the court, it was already clear that this was going to become a very political court. And there were political offences put in, um, which had nothing to do with war crimes, but that was just the way that really the court was hijacked from its original, really altruistic ideas until, until its current position today. Well, as I understand, they have charged the state of Israel, or maybe some personnel in Israel, with a international criminal crime. Can you explain what the charges against Israel are a personality? Which is it, the state or a personality? So the court is a criminal court, which means that there has to be suspicions and indictment against specific people. It's not an indictment of the state of Israel. That's not something that's going to happen. But what they have done is that at this stage, they've opened an investigation into events and activities that they claim are a breach of international law and the crimes that they're going to be looking at as part of the investigation. But just to give you an idea of, of, of what we're talking about, on the one hand, we're, we're looking at Hamas, terrorist organizations, indiscriminately firing missiles at Israel, at Israel's civilian population, and then Israel responding and defending itself. We suddenly become the criminals as part of defending ourselves. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, one of the more political offenses that was put into the, the statute of the court was the offense of transferring your civilian population to an occupied area. Well, we're talking about Jews living in Judea and Samaria, returning to their ancestral homeland. And imagine, Jimmy, that we're talking about Jews living in Hebron, who have been in Hebron for 2,000 years, come along the Arabs and they massacre the Jewish community in Hebron in 1929. Jews leave until 1967 because they can no longer live there. They come back to their own properties. That is now a criminal offense for the International Criminal Court. That's the things that we're looking at. Maurice, the other day I heard Secretary of State Tony Blinken, who is, of course, the leader in a Joe Biden cabinet as far as it relates to foreign policy. He made the statement that the ICC has no jurisdiction over Israel. Is that actually the case? It is 100% the case, correct as a legal fact. Really, the court is meant to be a court for states. The Palestinian Authority is not a state. There is no state of Palestine. It should never have been allowed to join the court. In the decision of the court that was recently given, the court agreed with that argument, said that there is no state of Palestine except for the sole purposes of opening the investigation into Israel. By the way, your article can be read by going to palwatch.org, P-A-L-W-A-T-C-H, palwatch.org. You can read the entire article by Maurice Hirsch. And the article, Maurice, states that there is collusion, actually, between the ICC and the Palestinian Authority. Are they working together? Can you give us all the details? So the prosecutor of the court is meant to be this independent body that looks objectively at any given situation and identifies potential criminals. Criminals, criminals, when you're a prosecutor and you're looking at the criminals, the prosecutor doesn't collude with the criminals. The prosecutor doesn't rely on, on the criminals to feed them information. They have their own system, which is meant to investigate, 
And every person is meant to be afraid. Every person who's committed a crime should feel that fear of the court. The Palestinian relationship with the prosecutor, with Fatou bin Souda, is such that the Palestinians have met with her, as the foreign minister described, on a constant basis since they joined the court in 2014, to the point where even before she made public her decision to investigate, and technically that investigation should also include an investigation of the Palestinian terrorists and, and even the Palestinian Authority for its payments to terrorists and rewarding of terrorists, it appears from the, the statement of the PA foreign minister that the prosecutor gave them prior notice of her decision and because of their close relationship simply asked them to keep it a secret. Maurice, I've got to tell you, bottom line, as far as I'm concerned, after reading your article and then having this conversation with you, looks to me like the ICC and the Palestinian Authority, plus the Palestinian terrorist organizations, are working together to try to destroy the Jewish state of Israel. Is that pretty much on target? It's exactly that. It's called lawfare. Using the legal systems all over the world, international legal systems, as a means and a method to attack, delegitimize, and really putting the main goal of the destruction of the state of Israel into the legal system to destroy the legal system from within solely to serve the purpose of the Palestinian cause. I've got to tell you, Maurice, I'm very much concerned about this. It simply is going along with the philosophy of the Palestinians, their desire to wipe Israel off the face of the earth, replace it with possibly a state, as you said, no state now called Palestine, but they would like to have that, wipe Israel out and then replace on that piece of real estate a state called Palestine. If you want to read this article, you can go to their website for Palestinian Media Watch. It's powellwatch.org. Go there and you can find the article by Maurice Hirsch. And Maurice, thank you so very much for helping us to understand better what's going on there in Israel as it relates to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Appreciate this conversation. Thank you, buddy. Thanks for having me. Stay safe and stay well. Right now, we're going to change to another region of the world. We go from the Middle East to the European Union. John Rood, who lived in Brussels, Belgium, for over 30 years, has great insight into what does happen each and every day politically in the European Union. And John, let me say that I do believe President Rouhani of Iran is making a pretty harsh statement to Europe. He made the statement this week to European Union people that uh, they should avoid threats at the negotiating table with Iran. Pretty brazen statement, isn't it? Well, Iran deals with things in an unusual fashion. They're usually very forward, very direct. And uh, yes, the Iranian president met with the Irish foreign minister and said negotiations need to be based on mutual respect and avoiding any threats or pressure. That seems to be their normal way of working, so it does seem a bit ironic. Iran, as we know, scaled back its compliance with the agreement. Britain, France, and Germany 
have dropped their resolutions against Iran, citing that Iran is showing good faith. So it's continuing. President Biden is showing an interest to return to the deal, but says Iran has to return to all the nuclear commitments. Then Iran is saying Washington has to scrap the sanctions against them first. So it's sort of an impasse. But, yes, they seem to be doing the very thing they're warning Europe again. John, we have not talked about Brexit for a long time. Uh, but headlines this week, Global Britain's post-Brexit gamble seems to be backfiring as China and the European Union are leaving the U.K. behind. What's the latest on that? Well, I, there's a balance in this. China has been making a move on the EU because, obviously, that's, 27 nations, and China and Britain have clashed in recent weeks, stopping permission for, uh, you know, various satellite news and so forth. So Britain has made a decision to work hard and to, you know, face the challenges which they knew would be there. Prime Minister Boris Johnson is looking to actually have the group of seven nations to be converted into a type of democratic tent. And so that would be another sign of a rivalry against China. So unusual in this piece, it says that the U.K. would even consider re-entering the EU. I wouldn't see that at the moment, but if they did so, then they would have to give up the British pound. So let's trust that this whole thing is not full circle. Uh, I believe Britain is at, at peace with their decision, but they're facing challenges. We often talk about Turkey, though they are not a member in the European Union. They are a part of NATO, which is the military operation for the EU. Turkey, this last week, seems to be signaling a sweeping regional ambition all the way from Southeast Europe to Central Asia. Those ambitions for Tayyip Erdogan wanting to be the Islamic leader the pan-Islamic leader of the world. Give us the latest. Yes, the regional ambitions of Turkey are, have never subsided, but they come to surface fairly regularly. The latest issue was a map that had come out from George Friedman's book, The Next 100 Years. Uh, he's the founder of Stratfor, which was sort of a pay-for-intelligence-type organization, they have many, many good things. I've read the book, The Next Hundred Years, and it's just a projection. But it shows that the Turkish influence and the map of Turkish influence in 2050 is essentially the entire Middle East, all of the Middle East except Israel and Iran. And so it's sort of turning heads in Iran and then as well in Russia because this paves way if Turkey has the influence in that entire southern region of the, of the former Soviet republics, then they can basically take from Central Asia all the way to Turkey and uh, expand their influence at the expense of Russia. So now Russia and uh, Turkey are at a bit of a confrontation because of Turkey's reference to this map, which is published from this intelligence organization. Interestingly, John, there is news coming that Greece, Cyprus, and Israel are signing a Euro-Asia interconnector deal. Now, let me explain what that means. It's a linking 
of the electrical grids of all three of these nations, Greece, Cyprus, and Israel. Looks like some type of an alignment there coming together as well. Yes, there's some major projects going on under the sea. I was in Djibouti one time, and there was a crew laying optical cable from uh, United Arab Emirates throughout the Middle East. This is very interesting, though, because Israel is included. So Greece, Cyprus, and Israel having an interconnector, Euro-Asia interconnector of electric grid, a cable which would be the deepest and the longest ever constructed. So it's nearly a $1 billion uh, at the moment. It appears the biggest benefit right away is that it ends the isolation for electric production for Cyprus, and then the main sections are going to be a connection between Israel and Cyprus, Cyprus and Crete, Crete and mainland Greece. So there's enough of the EU involved. The EU has said that they will uh, partially fund the project. But the ultimate purpose of this is a backup power system. So very interesting that Israel has this connection with Cyprus and Greece as a backup power. Yes, very, very interesting. Well, it's a part of the political activities that take place in the European Union and every connecting story that we can come up with in addition to the fact that then that political is setting the stage for the prophetic. And that's the reason we bring John Rood to this broadcast table. John, thank you so much. We'll talk again next week. Thank you. My pleasure. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, one more broadcast partner. That's David James, the Christian community in Iraq, quite upset with the visit by Pope Francis. You need to understand the reason why. David will explain that to us in the next portion of Prophecy Today. Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung here at Broadcast Central as I have been for the last hour. Give me another half hour. We'll conclude with our conversations as the broadcast partners come to tell us what is going on in this world. David James will report that the Christians in Iraq are upset because of the visit to Iraq by Pope Francis. We'll get to that in a moment. My poll question found on my home page, prophecytoday.com. On the left-hand column as you scroll down, here's the question. China now has the largest navy in the world and is quickly becoming the number one economic power in the world as well. Do you believe these facts confirm that China will be a major force in the end of times as foretold in Revelation chapter 16 and verse 12. Go to my website, prophecytoday.com, answer the poll question. That's prophecytoday.com. We now bring to this broadcast table David James. David and I endeavor each week to give you biblical principles that will help you stand up a deal with the issue that we are discussing in our conversation. Want to talk about the Pope's visit to Iraq this time and the coming world religion. So keep it right there where it is on your radio dial as David and I have our conversation. David, this week, I want us to answer a listener question. 
He has a question about the need for Jews and Gentiles to be born again, and then whether Gentiles actually become spiritual Jews when they are saved. This is a question that many have. I am looking forward for you helping to inform us from the Word of God. Sure, Jimmy. Well, our listener wrote this. 1 Corinthians 10.32 clearly says there are three kinds of people. So does this mean that Jews must be born again and that Greeks must be born again? I think the term Greeks covers a lot of nationalities. And then finally she asks, does being born again mean that we are Jews spiritually? So, Jimmy, in the Old Testament, those who weren't descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are called goyim in the Hebrew, which is usually translated as either nations or Gentiles in English. Then in the New Testament, Gentiles and nations translate the Greek word ethnos, but sometimes the word for Greeks is used interchangeably with Gentiles, and so generically it just means someone who isn't Jewish. Now back to 1 Corinthians 10.32, Paul says, Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the Church of God. So the Church of God is made up of ethnic Jews and Gentiles who are born again. And in Romans 10, Paul makes it clear that both Jews and Greeks must hear, understand, and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ in order to be saved. And concerning whether Christians are Jews spiritually, the simple answer is no. First, the Church doesn't replace Israel and God's program. Uh, But secondly, we're spiritual descendants of Abraham only. We aren't spiritual descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which would be required for us to be Jews spiritually. You know, over the years, David, we've covered uh, Pope Francis doing some of his speeches there at the Vatican and then traveling around the world. I introduced our segment about we wanted to discuss the Pope's visit recently to Iraq. And we've done this several times over the years, but uh, this time it's because of his recent trip to Iraq, as I mentioned, and his meetings with the Islamic clerics. Discuss that with us. Well, the Pope began his four-day trip on Friday of last week, and this was the first trip by any Pope to Iraq, and it was Pope Francis's first trip outside of Italy since the start of the COVID pandemic last year. And as reported by the BBC, Iraq, which has seen more than 13,500 deaths with COVID-19 and more than 726,000 cases, has recorded a sharp rise in infections over the past month. So the Pope and his entourage had all been vaccinated. And CNN reported that the Pope told journalists traveling with him on the papal plane This is a symbolic trip. It's a duty. It has been a martyred land for too long. And then the Washington Post began an article on the visit this way. With cheering, partially masked crowds, and armed security lining the roads, Pope Francis began the first-ever papal trip to Iraq on Friday, seeking reconciliation in a country with an extraordinary biblical history, a surging coronavirus outbreak, and ongoing political turmoil. And then the article continued... He called for cooperation among ethnic groups in the palace once used by autocrat Saddam Hussein. He called for an end to religious violence in a church where 10 years earlier gunmen had killed 58 people, leaving flesh on the pews. And then the article also noted that Pope Francis said, I come as a pilgrim of peace. You know, earlier this week, David, I sent you an article from Jihad Watch website. They talked about how Iraqi Christians 
are actually concerned that the Pope's visit did not help them at all. Explain that. Well, you're right, Jimmy, and it, it honestly doesn't surprise me. Uh, that Jihad Watch article you sent me had the title, Iraqi Convert to Christianity, Muslims are triumphantly declaring that the Pope has surrendered to Islam. And then the rest of the article was actually from a different article on a Roman Catholic website called churchmilitant.com, and that article was titled, Pope's Trip Leaves Collateral Damage. Now, quoting a convert to Christianity named Nasser Azah, the article said, Pope Francis' Iraq trip has triggered a tidal wave of mockery on social media with Muslims gleefully announcing that the Pontiff has surrendered to Islamic supremacy. And Azah went on to say, the Kurdish response to Francis on the final day of his visit has been largely negative, as many Kurds see the Pope as a person who flatters wicked people like President Erdogan, that's Erdogan of Turkey. And I couldn't find out whether Azai is Catholic or evangelical, but he said this too, only small pockets of Catholics who are influenced by evangelicals are engaged in evangelization. Then he went on to say, the collateral damage for evangelism among Muslims will be monumental. And he said that the mockery is incredible, as the Muslims say Francis is bowing to Muhammad as his prophet. And one interesting thing about this article is that churchmilitant.com was founded some 50 years ago as a quote-unquote media enterprise established to address the serious erosion of the Catholic faith in the last 50 years. David, one of the things that we often hear is that since Allah is simply the Arabic name for God, and both Christianity and Islam are so-called Abrahamic faiths, then Christians and Muslims are actually worshiping the same God. Your information is going to be key in understanding the answer to this question. Well, Jimmy, in today's world, the idea that Christians and Muslims worship the same God is certainly a prevalent view. Theconversation.com has an article titled, In Spite of Their Differences, Jews, Christians, and Muslims Worship the Same God, and that article goes on to say, It's often assumed that the God of Islam is a fierce, warlike deity, in contrast to the God of Christianity and Judaism, who is one of love and mercy, and yet, despite the manifest differences in how they practice their religions, Jews, Christians, and Muslims all worship the same God. And that article continues with this, Since Muhammad inherited the Jewish and Christian understandings of God, it is not surprising that the God of Muhammad, Jesus, and Moses has a similarly complex and ambivalent character, a blend of benevolence and compassion combined with wrath and anger. However, Jimmy, an article on the Columbia International University website presents a very different picture, noting this, Allah is a generic term for the highest God, and in Arabia it was used for centuries before Muhammad came on the scene. And that article also notes that Allah was apparently one of the 360 gods worshipped in the Kaaba in Mecca and was the chief god of Muhammad's Quraysh tribe. So, Jimmy, although Arabic Christians also use Allah as a generic word for God, they realize that the Allah of Islam is not the same God they worship, because for Muslims, God has no son, while for Christians, including Arabic Christians, Jesus is Allah. So Yahweh and the Allah of Islam are absolutely not the same God. 
David, I think you and I would both agree this pope seems to have one of the most ecumenical mindsets of anyone who has ever held that position. What are some of the things that he said over the years that give insight into how he thinks, actually, about salvation in general? Well, in 2018, at the 70th anniversary of the founding of the World Council of Churches, Pope Francis said this, I wanted to take part personally to reaffirm the commitment of the Catholic Church to the cause of ecumenism. And he continued by saying, whenever we say our Father, we feel an echo within us of being brothers and sisters. So Pope Francis speaks as if all Christians are truly brothers and sisters in Christ, which is at the heart of ecumenism. Uh, Back in 2016, at the Great Synagogue of Rome, he said this, With this visit, I'm following in the footsteps of my predecessors, Pope John Paul II came here 30 years ago, and on that occasion he coined a beautiful expression, elder brothers, and indeed you are our elder brothers and sisters in the faith. We all belong to a single family, the family of God. So, Jimmy, he sees Jews as well as spiritual brothers and sisters in the Lord. Then in uh, 2017, CNN ran an article with the title, Pope suggests it's better to be an atheist than a bad Christian. And in a homily, Pope Francis said this, If you're a Christian who exploits people, leads a double life, or manages a dirty business, perhaps it's better not to call yourself a believer. So many Christians are like this, he said, and these people scandalize others, but to be a Catholic like that, it's better to be an atheist. And then back in 2015, the Pope wrote this in a letter, you asked me if the God of Christians forgives those who don't believe and who don't seek the faith. I start by saying that God's mercy has no limits. If you go to him with a sincere and contrite heart, the issue for those who do not believe in God is to obey their conscience. David, I I do believe that many of these things that we've been discussing, and those listening to it, they would believe in their hearts and minds, they probably have in times implications. And of course, there are a number of people who tend to think that the Pope will be the Antichrist. Now, from the Word of God, what are your thoughts on this from a biblical perspective? Well, Jimmy, even going back to the Reformers, uh, many thought the Pope is the Antichrist, but John says in 1 John that the Antichrist is someone who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh, but Roman Catholicism affirms Jesus' deity. And one reason people think the Pope will be the Antichrist is because of the harlot in Revelation 17. Now, I do think the false prophet could be the Pope, but the Antichrist will be a political and military leader who will rise from obscurity, the little horn of Daniel 7, and he will revive the Roman Empire based on chapters 2 and 7 of Daniel. But my guess is that many don't realize there will actually be two world religions during the tribulation period. The first global false religious system seems to be centered in Rome, as described in Revelation 17, which is a global apostate ecumenical Christianity, it seems, with perhaps a Roman Catholic foundation, which will likely absorb most uh, other religions around the world. But in Revelation 17:16, we read this, And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. So the leaders of the revived Roman Empire will destroy the first world religion around the midpoint of the tribulation, 
Then the second world religious system begins when the Antichrist defiles the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, as described in Daniel 9 and Matthew 24, and he will declare himself to be God, as foretold in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And this all happens after the rapture, and the world is being prepared, and the stage is being set for what's coming. The information that we are able to pass along to you when we discuss a particular issue confronting the body of Christ, is biblical in its foundation and prophetic significantly for the issue as it sets the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. That's why I do believe this segment of Prophecy Today Weekend is key for our listeners. David, thank you for the research. Thank you for the information. Appreciate it. Uh, Come back and join me next week for another discussion on another issue. I'll look forward to it, Jimmy. We're going to have to take a quick break. When we come back, I'll take all the reports from my broadcast partners, put together each and every report, and we'll take a look at them as we look at the prophetic perspective from the Word of God. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Hey everyone, this is Dave James with the Alliance for Biblical Integrity. You hear me each week discussing current theological issues with Jimmy DeYoung on the Prophecy Today weekend broadcast. We founded the Alliance for Biblical Integrity because we saw a need for an apologetics and discernment ministry that would be an important resource for local churches, schools, and ministry organizations that face ever-changing theological challenges in today's world. I teach many different courses and seminars in the United States and around the world and can tailor the seminars for Sunday schools, Bible studies, and church services, and the courses for weekend conferences of 6 to 10 hours. For more information, you can go to the ABI website at biblicalintegrity.org. That's one word, biblicalintegrity.org, and click on Courses and Seminars on the main menu. You can also contact me personally through the contact page on the ABI website. I look forward to hearing from you. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. It's time right now here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. Today on Prophecy Today Weekend, My broadcast partners came to the broadcast table to give us reports on key regions and locations of our world as it relates to the prophetic scenario found in the Word of God. They do this so that you and I can be abreast of how the world is quickly moving in the direction 
that will set the stage for God's prophetic scenario to be fulfilled. As you were able to hear these reports today, we can come to a realization where we are in God's plan for the end times. And by the way, should you have had to miss any of these reports, please go to my website, prophecytoday.com, and then to PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network. It's on the right-hand column as you scroll down. There you will find these reports all archived so that you can listen to them at your convenience. That's prophecytoday.com, Prophecy Today Radio Network. And be sure to tell a friend or a family member about these very important conversations. Now, let me give you my prophetic perspective on all of the reports. Ken Timmerman, who covers geopolitical activities in the world, talked to us about China who could assume global leadership, especially now that they have the largest navy in the world. According to Revelation chapter 16 and verse 12, China, as one of the kings of the East, will be a major force just prior to the return of Jesus Christ. That's not the rapture, but seven years after the rapture, the return of the Lord. China will also be in partnership with the Antichrist at that time and go to Jerusalem to try to stop the return of Christ. That's Revelation chapter 16, verses 13 to 16. David Dolan gave us his Middle East News update, a must-listen-to item on our weekend program. You know, the Iranian defense minister is saying that if Israel does launch a preemptive strike on Iran's nuclear program, Iran will destroy Tel Aviv and Haifa. The Iranian-Israeli conflict is only a portion of the alignment of nations called for by Ezekiel 38, Psalm 83, and Daniel chapter 11, that will take place at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period. I can tell you this, Iran may win a battle, but Israel will win the war. That's according to Ezekiel 38, verse 18, through chapter 39, verse 6, when the Lord intercedes to protect his chosen people, the Jewish people. Winky Madad is always on topic with the latest information coming out of the Middle East as we have a conversation with him. This time we talked about Saudi Arabia does not see a link between Islam and the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. I would then think that means the Jews can go ahead and build their temple on the Temple Mount. You know, the holiest site in Islam is not the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, but instead it is the Kahaba in Mecca, Saudi Arabia. The Saudis want all of Islam to acknowledge that by praying five times a day facing towards Mecca. 
with the Palestinian claim that Al-Aqsa Mosque on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem is in total contradiction to what the Saudis say. The Saudis say no connection, therefore, as I said, the Jews might as well go ahead and build their temple there. Maurice Hirsch, who is with Palestinian Media Watch, talked about the ICC, the International Criminal Court, and the Palestinians teaming up to destroy the Jewish state. You know, as you trace the Palestinian people through the Bible, from Genesis chapter 25 all the way to the little book of Obadiah, you'll see that the ultimate goal for the Palestinian people is to destroy the Jewish state and replace it with a Palestinian state. That's found and foretold by the ancient Jewish prophets in Ezekiel 36, verses 5 and 10, and the book of Malachi, chapter 1. That's the motivation behind the Palestinian effort to destroy the Jewish state. John Rood covers the European Union, and we talked about Iranian President Rouhani, who warns the European Union on their threats towards Iran. Iran actually wants to be and lead the kingdom of the world that will be headquartered in Jerusalem. By the way, that kingdom has been reserved for Jesus Christ. Iran's eschatology is driving the Iranian leaders to work for that worldwide position. Iran, I can tell you, will fail. Jesus will rule that kingdom from Jerusalem. And David James came to the broadcast table to talk about an issue confronting the body of Christ with me. Our conversation was focused on the Christian community in Iraq, upset because of the visit to Iraq by Pope Francis, which will hinder them from leading Muslims to Jesus Christ, and they see it as stage setting for Revelation chapter 17. Remember, Revelation 17 foretells of a one-world religion headquartered in Rome. The Pope's travel to Iraq and his meeting with Islamic leaders seem to be setting for that prophecy, Revelation 17, to be fulfilled. Every report from my broadcast partners gave us information that is evidence of where we are on God's calendar of prophetic events. That evidence is very strong indicating that we are quickly approaching the next event, the rapture of the church. And in fact, that rapture could actually happen today. So let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. 